This is Two Guys in a Bible. This is a weekly conversation on theology, culture, and God's Word. My name is Dylan Keniston. I am joined this beautiful afternoon by my co-host, Eric Leupold. Good Eric, morning. How are you doing? Or afternoon. I'm doing great. Afternoon, afternoon. <laughs> and, and actually, today we are also joined by a special guest, Dr. Chris Christensen, who is a doctor at Abington Jefferson Health, uh, doctor of pulmonary and critical care. Did I get that right? You did. That's Excellent. very good. Excellent. So uh, Dr. Chris Christensen is with us today. Can, can we call you Doc? Is sure. that okay? That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. So, so it's three guys in a Bible today. Th- three guys in a Bible today. Well, two, yeah, guys exactly. a <laughs> two guys and a doctor. Two guys and a doctor. Two guys and a doctor. And we need it. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, so, so yeah, doctor on the body and a doctor on the soul, man. I love it. I love yeah, it. Yeah. Um, so, so what we're going to do today is a little bit of a unique episode. So we're going to talk, I'd love to hear a little bit, we'd love to talk about just your background and kind of what your role is in relation to, um, uh, in relation to the church and as, as well as just kind of your spiritual background, like how you came to know the Lord. Um, and then we talk a little, would like to talk a little bit about, um, some maybe, uh, medical slash ethical questions, uh, that sometimes mm-hmm. come up in conversations among, uh, people of faith, and uh, we'd just love to hear your take on Great. it. Yeah. Um, so just tell us a little bit about your, your spiritual background and, and kind of how did you come to faith in Christ? So uh, I was born and raised in a Catholic family, and um, we had a very devout mother who took us to church all the time, but uh, I was also a child of the 60s and 70s, so mm. uh, faith was really not a big issue for me or my uh, siblings. And so uh, as often happens and is happening a lot today, uh, when I went away to college, I fell away from faith, mm. uh, whatever faith we had, um, and then um, met uh, my girlfriend who became my wife. And through that relationship and uh, some of our friends uh, started to uh, get a sense that there was more out there than nothing. Mm. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and um, I came to faith in 78 uh, and largely was, I would say, soft in my faith for a few years, but uh, I think the Holy Spirit kind of uh, lit a fire under me shortly there after around 1980, started getting very involved in um, uh, Bible studies and small groups and uh, really uh, got on fire for mm. Christ. And uh, Not literally. <clears throat> not literally. Metaphor. No, Metaphor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That was uh, pre-asbestos. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. Yeah. So around the 1980s, then you you would say you kind of yeah. became a believer. Yeah. Um, and what about since then? Like, how is your how's your faith evolving? Yeah. Kind of how did you find your way over it to yeah. Hilltown Baptist? So it's you know it's a long stretch. Guy, uh, <laughs> it's 30 some years ago. So I I would say that I have uh, largely um, been a strong believer during that time. I've had my moments where. Uh, we've had uh, downtime. Um, I think my marriage has been strong. Um, we have four children, That's four awesome. boys, and uh, uh, they. it's been a joy to watch them uh, grow up. And um, one of our children is uh, a, a missionary in Bangladesh. Uh, mm-hmm. Another one is in med school right now. So uh, it's been great. You know, all those roles, father, yeah. husband, mm. um, physician, uh, they all are different hats. And they all integrate with faith um, in a very powerful way. So that's been a joy and a blessing and yeah. a challenge. <laughs> and and uh, you've been at Hilltown for how many years now? We came to Hilltown in 93. Okay. So it's 25 years. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And you yeah. also serve as an elder here. I have. Yeah. Yeah. Again, with you. Yeah. <laughs> but even well, before my time, before you that, were an elder. Yes, yes. I'm one of the older elders. <laughs> the old, old elders? Well, I'm the elder, elders. Older, you're yeah. the uh, younger elder. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, how, how did the Lord kind of, uh, you know, 
take you um, in towards medicine generally as a profession? How did yeah, that come so, about? So that's actually kind of an interesting story because my uh, undergraduate degree was in math, physics, and education. Oh, wow. So, and that's where I met my uh, girlfriend, soon-to-be wife. Uh, that was Millersville State College back then, now Millersville University. Hmm. But it uh, became clear to me as I was finishing uh, that uh, career, education, that uh, education was not going to be uh, a long-term uh, career goal for me. So mm. uh, I was looking into advanced training in math and physics, uh, had got accepted into NYU, got a letter from the provost there who said, we're looking forward to having you at NYU, but you should know there's not a lot of jobs for math PhDs. Mm. So I said, okay, thanks. I'm done. I'm done <laughs> yeah. with you guys. Good looking out. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And then actually went to work. I worked in like a, um, a paint factory and then I worked mm. in a hospital. And mm. this was kind of amazing because this was uh, after I came to faith but the guy that I worked with was a Messianic Jew hmm. uh, pathologist who was constantly evangelizing me over dead bodies, hmm. <laughs> literally. <laughs> <Over> dead bodies. <laughs> so, so talk about, you know, a, a fertile field. Yeah. So here we got a corpse in front of us that he's cutting up in autopsy oh and he's pitching the gospel to me. So it was, you know, kind of a powerful presentation, <laughs> but goodness. I actually fell in love with medicine at that point. Uh, then had to go back and do all the medical prerequisites, biology and chemistry, mm -hmm. and then uh, uh, went to med school. I started med school in uh, 78 and finished, uh, graduated 82. Mm. And then I was born that year, by the way. 82? Uh, yeah. yeah. Just yeah. Not, not trying to say anything. Yeah, I was halfway <laughs> down my life at that point. <laughs> so, but then it's, you know, it's a lot of training then. It's um, uh, three years of internal medicine and then two years of uh, pulmonary critical care training. Then I did special training in occupational medicine. Mm. So those were all really exciting years, but they were lean years because I wasn't really making very much and the kids were starting to roll in oh, know, at that yeah. point. So, a lot of studying. Yeah. So finally started my career in 88. 1988 is when I started my career mm. as a pulmonary critical care specialist at Abington Memorial Hospital mm -hmm. then, now Abington Jefferson Health. Hmm. So so my understanding, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you also have a voice in their uh, kind of ethics committee and how some of the yeah. hospital teases some of that. Like, how did that connection yeah. start? How did you get on there? So that's a good question because we um, – uh, I was uh, made the chairman of the Institutional Review Committee. That's the committee that oversees medical research. Uh, and I was also asked to be on the bioethics committee. So that's mm -hmm. the committee that oversees the morality and ethical issues at the mm -hmm. hospital. So and they're really two different roles, two different hats. Um, I've been the chair of the IRB, the Institutional Review Board, for about 25 years. Mm -hmm. uh, and the ethics committee I've been on for over about 10 years. Mm -hmm. So, do you get elected to that? By the way, is that no, like an elected? Position? No, it's kind of a. Uh, basically, all physicians are expected to be involved in committees and subcommittees at the hospital. So okay. it's part of good citizenship. So oh. you know, you could either be part of the medical records committee, which is not one that most people put their hands up for, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or you could be in you know some of the like the like the uh, P and T pharmacy and therapeutics committee okay. is a hot. Uh, committee sought yeah. after because then you have all the pharmacology reps chasing you down 
trying to buy you lunch because yeah. you're P and T. So because you're, you're that's how they get the drug on. Like how do they get the drugs to be used by the hospital? Yeah, so it's kind of like a mini Congress. So they really? will lobby you okay. to try and get their particular drug uh, on our what's called formularies. The formulary is what each hospital has the particular drugs that uh, each hospital has, and they don't have a lot of me too drugs. So I'm a as a pulmonologist, there are probably about six drugs that do the exact same thing for asthma. Hmm. So the hospital will pick the best one. Oh. And typically what happens is the best deal they get is the drug they'll take. So they oh, negotiate see. with the pharmaceutical companies and try and get the best deal for the hospital. So we're a big hospital. Yeah. We're a 700 bed hospital. So it's, you know, that's a big contract to get. Yeah. And each hospital is, do they function independently or are, are you under a branch of other hospitals they all kind of yeah. work together. So we were, as Abington Memorial Hospital, we were the only show in town, you know, for ourselves. But now that we're part of uh, the Jefferson Network, mm. which is a huge uh, conglomerate, I, you know, I think all that's changing. So oh. the formulary is all changing. Everything is kind of changing to try and make it one Jefferson is the... Uh, um, I guess hand signals don't work in a podcast, do you? but it's okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The umbrella gesture. Yeah, yeah the umbrella umbrella gesture. Gesture. So, like, and, and pardon my ignorance here, because this is just some. This is just an area about which I know so so little. Um, but like, so Abington Jefferson and the Jefferson Network generally is this. So I I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, that some hospitals have like explicitly and intentionally Christian roots and foundations and yeah um, but but then some do not and what's what's jefferson uh, abington jefferson's uh posture there yeah you're right dylan so uh, for example holy redeemer hospital mm-hmm. is a uh, catholic based hospital uh, uh, abington and now abington jefferson is a secular institution okay. so we're kind of uh, like every other secular institution you know they hold to all the the uh, bylaws of the uh, of the government and really um, are very much leaning towards political correctness in oh. pretty much everything they do. So we have diversity training and all oh. the things that you would see in a large secular uh, institution. So um, we actually, was interesting, uh, probably 10 years ago, we were approached by Holy Redeemer to merge. So really? it was going to be Abington Holy Redeemer. Hmm. And interesting. Uh, as a uh, pro-life physician who's opposed our hospital's policy, I was very excited about that because Holy Redeemer has a very strict policy on abortion, mm. issue, which we're going to be talking about later on. Um, and the outcry in the community was so intense, mm. the merger fell through. Mm. Like the idea so, that you guys would not. We would not. Yeah. Mm. So we, you know, Montgomery County in particular, our uh, community around the hospital is uh, politically fairly progressive. Mm-hmm. Just mm-hmm. put it that way. And the outcry was incredible. Uh, and unfortunately, the hospital hadn't done the homework and hadn't anticipated that. So they were kind of blindsided by it. So mm-hmm. there was, an, as is often the case, an announcement was made that Abington is going to merge with Holy Redeemer. And it was just kind of left at that. And then um, some of the more politically active uh, people in the community and on staff started to investigate and realized that they had cracked a deal with Holy Redeemer regarding the issue of abortion, mm-hmm. and it, it really blew up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, what was it? Was it a small group of people with a very loud voice, or really was it a lot of people? It's hard to know. It was loud enough that it, it shut it down. <laughs> oh wow! So yeah, because yeah, your career now started in in nineteen eighties. Right. So during this time, you were there and and a mm-hmm. part of all of this. So oh, yeah, how did that how did that play itself out from your perspective? 
Well, it was, uh, what I was trying to do was fly under the radar, yeah, really, yeah. because I have a, a pretty um, strong reputation for who I am in my faith and who I am in opposition to the mm -hmm. hospital's abortion policy. So uh, I think we, I've organized a group that over the last 20-some years has uh, protested the hospital's policy. Mm -hmm. Abington has, uh, every year, had a uh, open board meeting. So the board of directors, once a year, opens the board meeting for the community. And so this is an opportunity for community members to approach the, the board of directors and appeal about anything, complain about something, appeal about what they'd like to see done, complain about the parking, you know, maybe <laughs> the food, you know, whatever. But we've used it as an opportunity to lobby them on their uh, abortion position. And so we have a, a kind of a strong group that has met yearly, we pray for the hospital, we pray for these uh, individuals, and we have made different <clears throat> cases about every possible case you could imagine uh, for the pro-life side mm -hmm. in that uh, time. Mostly it has fallen on deaf ears. I hate to say that, but mm -hmm. there have been some small shining lights over the yeah. years where a few board members have approached me afterwards and uh, wanted to talk more about oh, wow. the issue. So that's been encouraging. But they've not changed their policy. They've yeah. been pretty hard line on their policy. Now, as a doctor who works there, though, are you you are allowed to work there and disagree with the policy? Yeah, or do course. they make everyone say, to work here, you must no. sign this and yeah. saying that you will toe, yeah. toe the party line? I hear yeah. that things are going in that I don't know if that's true, but I hear, like, because I, I have some family members who are, like, going through nursing school now. This is something that I hear is, like, um, more and more it's, like, you know, in the name of patient first, it's right. like we can't be conscientious subjectors anymore. And I, I don't know if that's you're yeah. seeing the same trend. So that's interesting. I, I would say right now that has not been an issue that uh, largely we can uh, have a um, kind of a legitimate, honorable opposition yeah. to the hospital's policy. They do have a very strong policy about smoking. Mm -hmm. so okay. you can't smoke. Uh, and can you be outside uh, on, on campus? You can't oh, okay. smoke on campus mm -hmm. oh. and vaccinations, interestingly. So uh -huh. if you uh, uh, refuse to get a flu vaccine, hmm. you can be dismissed. Interesting. So they're looking at issues like obesity yeah. and some of these other issues because they self-insure. <laughs> so interesting. <laughs> myself, yeah. they, they, yeah. You know, the hospital uh, oh, they, doesn't use Blue Cross and Blue Shield. They are. They are. They're the they're the big institution yeah. now. They, they have they, their own insurance. Yeah, they they are their own insurance, and so they have now have a vested interest. If you're a smoker, yeah, you're you know you have a copay that's very high, and if you're obese. They're looking at that as possibly an issue. At right now, it'll probably be an issue of, uh, of like a tax mm. on your insurance. But at some point, it could even come down to. Very interesting. You mean you mean for people who work there, or you mean for regular for people, people who people work who, there? Oh, I was gonna yeah. say a yeah. tax. On we welcome obese people as patients. <laughs> That's what I, say. I was gonna say. <laughs> in, fact, in fact, it's probably about three quarters of our population. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh well, my god! I mean, one of the things. So, if I could just jump in, one of the yeah. things that I'm just super encouraged by, like if you're if you're out there and you're a young person who is who uh, desires to pursue ministry, right? I think the Apostle Paul says you desire a noble thing. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, there is so much opportunity and work and and just service to be done for for Christ's glory right. in the secular world. And so, I just I'm I'm grateful to God for for your your voice and your service um, in that in that capacity, like at a place like Abington Jefferson Hospital, 
very grateful for the care that they provide yeah. and, and for your voice there. And mm-hmm. I mean, that's just something like, you know, I know a lot of times, you know, especially young people who are just like, oh, I want to get into the ministry. I want to go, you know what I mean? Right. There's so many ways to glorify God oh, yeah. in, in the marketplace. Yeah, look, I think um, over the years, uh, it has been a real joy. It's my mission field. Yeah. You know, my oldest yeah. boy is in Bangladesh. I'm in Abington. Yeah. And in and they're both very difficult mission fields, by yeah. the way. Mm-hmm. You know, Bangladesh is uh, 96% um, Muslim. Well, Abington, I would say, is it's it's not ninety six percent Muslim, secular. but it is very secular. It's very hostile mm-hmm. to the gospel, um, and if if the Christians pull out mm-hmm. of those secular mission fields because yeah. it's too awful and hateful, then there'll be no voice yeah. for Christ. Yeah. There'll be no no uh, light in a dark uh, yeah. place. And so we have a critical role, I Amen. think. You know, whatever wherever God has called you, whatever field he's called you to, then you have a critical role to be the light in Amen. those now, areas. Now, I'm, I'm familiar, um, we're all, I'm sure everyone's listening is familiar with Planned Parenthood and how they have their clinics and that's where right. abortions take place. But so here's my question is that does, does the hospital actually perform those procedures at the hospital? Yeah, they do about um, 150 to 200 a year at Abington. Okay. So they're not a major abortion provider. Um, and most of the ones that they do are going to be uh, mid to late term. And the late term abortions really? are largely for women who are truly in a life threatening situation. So now, you know, the data is pretty clear that the vast majority of abortions in the United States are done, done for convenience. And less than 1% are done for um, when the mother's life is physically, not emotionally, physically in jeopardy. So it does happen. But we have a high-risk pregnancy group at Abington. Uh, we have a neonatology group at Abington. So we are the place that's going to get some of those higher-risk pregnancies. Mm-hmm. And some of them go sour. And so I'm, as a critical care specialist, I'll be involved in those cases um, and we will kind of work back and forth with the high-risk pregnancy people and say, look, you know, this even though she's very sick, the mother, um, we think we can get her through this okay. Don't abandon this pregnancy. Don't terminate it just yet. And, so do you, So, your thoughts on that perspective as far as, you know, some people say it's okay to abort for life of the mother. Your perspective on that? Yeah, well, I think that uh, when it's truly the mother's life is in jeopardy, I think in those situations, which are pretty uncommon, I think, you you know, you do what you have to do to save the mother in that situation. There's no guarantee, especially uh, if the pregnancy has not gotten to viability. So that's that's like 22 weeks, 21 weeks. So that's another interesting point. I think in Mm. in my career, viability has been moving south. So it was in the the, um, 30th week. Uh, we now have uh, at Abington, because we have a very aggressive neonatal intensive care mm-hmm. unit, we've had uh, a 23-weeker oh, wow. go to wow. term. So, the, by the way, the chief of staff uh, at Abington Jefferson is one of the members of my group mm. that has opposed the mm. hospital's policy. Mm. He's very pro-life, and he is uh, also um, uh, the one who is uh, recovering these babies, these mm-hmm. very, very early preemies. Um, he's an amazing guy. So kind of neat. Now he's in a difficult, difficult position now as the chief of staff. So he has to speak for everybody. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think that if truly the mother's life is in jeopardy and you have no other option, then I think you do what you have to do to try and save the mother in that situation. Mm -hmm. And so we do, we support, 
uh, support her life. And there's no guarantee that even if you tried to pursue that the baby would survive in those situations. But those are pretty uncommon. You know, I don't yeah. know how many times I can say that. You know, uh, it's less than 1% of the cases of abortion in the United States where, where there are about 4,000 a day in the U.S. It's like, a lot. Of, of all abortions, 4,000 total abortion abortions. in the country. A no, day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Day. It's almost like a 9-11 every day. Yeah. Which is and you know in uh, some states uh, it's a very high incidence. Uh, District District of Columbia, thirty eight percent of all pregnancies end in abortion. In New Jersey, it's around thirty percent of all pregnancies end in abortion. Wow. So and then you have your like Wyoming's and Utah's where it's like five percent or less. Hmm. So of uh, pregnancies end in abortion. So it's a big disparity there. Uh, very big. Yeah. Yeah. But you can you get a sense as to those particular states and their politically where they stand yeah that makes sense well so i mean could you share a little bit about um so one of the this is in in one sense a bit of a merger episode because typically we'll have you know an an episode that's just an interview and then sometimes we'll have an episode that's like a mailbag episode where we review a question from a listener well we did have one question from a listener i thought you know we were talking about this this might just be a suitable episode to bring it up um, one listener reached out and just asked, you know, from a medical perspective, we say, look, you know, at, at, as Christians, um, we believe the Bible and the Bible is entirely sufficient in, in guiding these kinds of questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, when it comes to deciding the, the ethics of something like um, abortion or, or, or being pro-life, um, it's, you know, fr- from a biblical perspective, this person is confident to stand on that. Um, but then, you know, it just... At the same time, though, you know, this is God's world and God's created order and God created things a certain way. So mm-hmm. uh, this, this person's asking, what are some arguments in favor of being pro-life from a medical slash scientific perspective? Um, and, you know, whatever you would be willing to share with that, just how you came sure. to that role. Yeah. yeah. Look, I think uh, first, just acknowledge that it's probably the most divisive topic yeah. in the United States. Yeah. That, yeah. And... Um, uh, but the interesting thing is somewhere in the order of uh, 26, 27 percent of people are pretty strong pro-life and probably a little bit less than that are pretty strong pro-choice. Mm-hmm. So it still leaves a large middle ground to appeal to, like maybe your, your listener who, who called in or uh, emailed in that uh, question. So, look, the, the question of um, – what are the best arguments really comes down to when you think life begins. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the biblical, um, the biblical argument is that we are created in God's image, right? And so when exactly does that take place? So is uh, a sperm and an egg as individuals created in God's image? Well, no, it says man is created in God's image. So that occurs just about all textbooks, scientific, secular textbooks would agree that life begins at conception. So there, at that moment of conception, you have a unique individual who has a unique uh, DNA uh, stamp, uh, and they then have the uh, ability to develop into a full-grown adult at that Mm. point. Mm. So, you know, the arguments of, uh, well, they're not really um, uh, human Mm -hmm. until they're just uh, tissue until they're free of dependency. Well, that's that's I think is a kind of a lame argument because <laughs> um, I you know you're not going to execute your children 
Yeah, and they're not they're not free of dependency. And they're even not free at of dependency. Six months old, right? So um, you know, then as you walk backwards, so then you have to kind of walk backwards. You have to go through the Peter Singers of this world. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a, yeah. a professor at Princeton who feels that it would be okay to euthanize somebody, infanticize mm -hmm. a child after the first few months. Right. So there's very few people in America, even the pro-choice people who would endorse uh, Peter Singer's yeah. perspective. Yeah. Okay, so that's fine. So we, I think we're in a, we're, we have a lot of common ground here. So let's just keep walking back. Mm -hmm. So that's really what you have to do with this argument. You walk it back to the zygote, you mm -hmm. know, the, the <laughs> single cell where the sperm and egg have um, a formed union. And, you know, where between there is uh, the unborn child now have personhood or humanness and humankind. And so any point you pick between the zygote and whatever point you pick is arbitrary and capricious. There's just no way <laughs> you can point. pick a spot yeah. because anywhere you pick, I'll say, well, go one day forward, yeah. one day backward. Or one minute forward, one minute backwards. So it's just, it's arbitrary. So I think the, the scientific arguments are very powerful, especially now with 4D ultrasound, where, you know, the, um, the parents can see the movement of the child. You know, the, most of the aborted, I would say 99% of the aborted fetuses have human features. Mm. As early as uh, four to six weeks after conception. So, hmm. you know, the development of um, the, the embryo is largely done in the first uh, trimester. And, and honestly, like with the four to six weeks there, um, I, I don't know, we, my wife and I have had three children, but, but we typically didn't even know that we were pregnant until, until four to six weeks that's right. already into it. That, that's right. So, so at that point, I mean, there's already uh, so much uniqueness, like you right. said. Yeah. yeah. I mean, um, uh, mostly you don't even consider it until um, the, your, your wife has missed her first period, right? Yes. Has missed a period. Mm -hmm. And so you're already a few weeks into it at that point, And now you're waiting to see if the period is going to come. And so you typically aren't going to get to that point until you're about four weeks out from yeah. conception. So, and most of the abortions I, uh, uh, that are occurring, um, they're stopping a, a heartbeat and they're stopping brain waves. So that's even those first about 20, I think it's 28% of abortions are done in the first six weeks. And by then, the, the uh, baby already has a heartbeat. Okay, at six and, weeks or And so? brain waves, yes. And brain waves at yeah. six weeks, wow, wow. So that's... hearts forming at 18 days, um, you have uh, by uh, 21 days, the heart is beating and pumping blood, 21 days. Mm. So um, 30 days uh, multiplied in size 10,000 times, brain and blood flow in the veins, you know, right. at that point. So can I keep going? Yeah. Please, just, yes, just please. This? Yeah. This is 35 days, mouth, ears, nose taking shape. Wow. Uh, so these are days after conception, by the way. 40, yeah. 40 days, um, brain waves are recorded. 40 wow. days. 40 days. Yeah, brain waves. 42 days, skeleton is formed. Wow. So now you're still, 42 days is you're getting just into. Just over a month. Yeah. So you're getting into six weeks, right? Yeah, that's right. So six weeks. That's um, uh, still, you don't have the majority of abortions are done yet. Okay. Right? So even at that point, you're dealing with these um, uh, babies who really have a lot of human features, mm -hmm. human elements. So mm -hmm. eight weeks, hands and feet uh, are 
uh, almost perfectly formed. Mm. There's the uh, the ten week pin. If you've ever seen that, it's mm. just like little teeny weeny pair of feet. Mm. So probably I don't know, maybe a centimeter. Oh wow! And so that's a ten week. But those those uh, ten weekers look like little human beings. Oh, so yeah, yeah. Eleven uh, eleven weeks. The baby's urinating, making facial expressions, and even smiling at 11 weeks. 11 mm. weeks. Right. Um, 12 weeks, the baby is kicking, turning, curling, fanning his toes, making a fist, moving thumbs. Mm. So, you know, there's already um, a lot of activity going on. You know, if you ask any mother whether the thing moving inside of her <laughs> is, is alive, yeah. what yeah. do you think she's going to say? Yeah. she's th- This baby's alive. Yeah. Right? So... The, the debate about when life begins is not a scientific debate anymore. It's a political debate, unfortunately. Okay. I think most of the textbooks, um, this is Dr. Keith Moore's embryology text. I'll just quote mm-hmm. from him. The cell results from fertilized fertilization of an oocyte and sperm and is the beginning of a human being. He also states each of us started life as a cell started as a zygote. So this is uh, a secular text. This is not a, a religious or theological text. Mm. This is uh, this is the uh, embryology book I used in med school. So, wow. and most scientists would agree, um, life begins at conception. Do Do you think that they tr- that the the, the pro abortion community tries to get around it by now we're using drugs that prevent implantation? So all those things sound well and good, doctor, but we can. We can right. just have people take pills, yeah, and then we're good to go, right? Yeah. Well, well, I think they have made it easy. You know, it's easier now with misoprostanol and some of the other abortifacts that are out there. Yeah. Um, it has created all sorts of uh, dilemmas for the government as to how, as you had mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. Dylan. You know, what do you deal with somebody who's in your um, uh, business yeah. who really? doesn't agree yeah. with your abortion policy. So right now, I think, uh, and our institution is largely secular and pretty hardcore uh, against the pro-life uh, group. So my group meets and presents to the hospital once a year. Mm-hmm. There's another group, a local group, that protests outside the hospital almost weekly. They protest. Are they pro-life or they're... They're pro-life, pro- yeah. and mm-hmm. they protest the hospital's abortion policy. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So pretty much weekly. And the hospital's been respectful of them, but but largely uh, haven't changed anything. Hmm. So, hmm. yeah, I, I, I think that these are really uh, political debates. And I think, quite frankly, both sides have used the uh, issue. Both the, the Republicans and the Democrats have used the issue to their advantage. You know, the Republicans sure. have co-opted evangelicals, and the Democrats obviously have co-opted Everybody else. <laughs> everybody else. Everybody else. Planned Parenthood. Largely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it seems like the, 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 the crux of it, at least as far as when I've uh, had this discussion with folks, is that uh, um, it comes down to whether the child is wanted or not. Because it seems like like a lot of states have laws that if you were to – if a person were to commit murder against a pregnant woman and kill right. her and her unborn, that person would get tried for two crimes. For two crimes. Or, or right. held accountable for two murders. Right. And so it seems like – if the per- if the mother wants the child, it's a person. It has value, and you must protect it. But right. if the mother does not want the child, it becomes without value. Right? Is yeah. that what you're seeing too? Yeah. No. Look, this is the most uh, psychotic issue you could ever imagine. Because if you saw an animal in the wild mm-hmm. kill its young, 
you, you would be like shocked, right? Mm -hmm. Because the natural instinct mm -hmm. is to do what? Preserve. It's even beyond self-preservation as preservation of your young. And so, you know, parents, mothers, fathers have died trying to protect or save their, their young. So the fact that we have this culture where it is okay to kill your unborn child is, it's just mind numbing to me. Yeah. 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 And, did you want to say something there? Oh, no, I was just going to, I agree with that entirely. And the other thing, too, is, um, well, so I did want to point out, you know, one of the things that I've heard along uh, different lines or, or folks from, um, you know, kind of the other side of this conversation mm -hmm. is that um, they make the point that there was a time uh, when, when I think in the late, the late 60s, I'm, I'm thinking about all the facts you're rattling off, right? And I'm just astonished by the, the power of that. Um, there are some folks who would point out that in the late 60s, there were some very prominent, um, I think, evangelical leaders and publications who were pro-choice, who, like by our standards today, would not be in, in line with the views that we're articulating here, mm -hmm. that it's kind of assumed orthodoxy that being pro-life is the quote-unquote Christian position. I think all of us here would agree that that's the case. Um, but there were many uh, evangelical leaders in the late 60s who were coming out um, in favor of the opposite view. And I think... The, all of the facts that you're, you're talking about when I'm hearing you make the, the medical case, part of me wants to say, I think they were just playing with, you know, not a full medical deck of cards. They didn't know. I don't think they knew, like, all of, of, of what was going on. So Maybe and, spiritually they knew, but maybe not. Maybe spiritually was known, yeah. but, but from, from a medical perspective, I don't know that, that all, of, all of that is known today was known then. Um, so that's just something that came yeah. to mind as I'm, as I'm hearing you talk about these facts. Yeah, so, I mean, there's a couple of issues related to that. First is that Roe was 1973. Roe v. Roe v. Wade, Roe v. Wade, yeah. Wade was yeah. 1973. Yeah. And before Roe v. Wade, um, there were a number of states that were moving towards a more permissive abortion policy. But Roe was the most permissive abortion policy in the world at the time, huh. and it well exceeded any state's um, mandate for abortion. Yeah. And uh, it, was, it was the law of the land, so no longer could states have any say in that. So mm -hmm. before Roe, there probably was some lobbying going on for some of these very exceptional cases. You know, uh, I, I think the, the, this is one of the confusing things to me is that the United States has one of the most permissive abortion policies in the world, it still does. And even with some of the restrictions that have been uh, laid on mm -hmm. over the last 10, 20 years. So whether that's going to change or not, I don't know. I mean, our politics have gotten more divisive, not yes. less. Quite yeah. frankly, I would argue that it's largely due to this issue. Mm -hmm. I think, think abortion is the one. I, I think it, it is the, the poison pill yeah. in our... I think we've always had political disagreements. And if, yeah. you, if you look back historically, we've always had contentious... Uh, political fighting, but um, it seems at an all-time bad right now. You know what's mm. interesting about that is like, so I remember when I was in college, it, this just sticks out to me. When I was in college, I would like on campus be able to, I would engage professors all the time just in, in discussion and debate, you know, sometimes privately in their office, sometimes in the classroom. But this issue I remember was the one issue that I'm, I'm thinking of a handful, a small handful of professors in particular they would not engage me on because mm -hmm. I, and I, 
I would have to be assuming about why. Mm. But for whatever reason, this is just, it was not up for debate. Mm -hmm. It was not up you for discussion. Yeah. Um, I mean, maybe I, I'm, people, you were free to talk about it if you fell on one side of the conversation. But if you fell on the other side of the conversation, yeah. you would just not be engaged back. Mm -hmm. So like if I would lean in and, and try to raise questions, it was just not something that mm. I got a whole lot of. From students, of course, a different story. But from the mm -hmm. professors, I thought that was I thought that was telling. Yeah. That's interesting. No, I, I agree. I think it has, as I said, it's a, a very divisive topic. It now is polarizing to the point where, if you're identified in that group, um, you you may be ostracized from mm. uh, certain activities. Yeah, you hate I mean, women's rights. You hate women. Yeah. Except, except for unborn women. You love unborn women. Yeah. But, right. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But I did have another question. I mean, it just boggles my mind because you're a doctor, and I know that uh, physicians, doctors adhere to the Hippocratic Oath, or at least that's that's referenced a lot. I know it's changed, or mm -hmm. it's been, I think, cherry picked in a lot of ways. Oh, because yeah. I'm reading now the original Hippocratic Oath, and of course, you know, Hippocrates, you know, he's swearing by Apollo, which, you know, we can discuss that some other time. Good old Apollo, but he says that uh, I. Uh, will give uh, in, in in the middle of the statement. I will give no deadly medicine to anyone if asked, nor suggest any such counsel. So there's the idea of a physician-assisted suicide, euthanasia. And in like manner, I will not give to a woman a pessary to produce abortion. So like even even there, even this Greek doctor right. recognizes that this was going on, and that he is not going to participate in causing death. Right. He's not going to be a, an agent of death. Mm -hmm. His job is to preserve life. And that's both the person who wants to commit suicide or or an, a pregnant woman. So how does the hospital square yeah. with the fact that they're not lining up with the Hippocratic Oath? Has it become like obsolete at this point? Or? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it's the convenience to just ignore it largely. Look, one of the uh, physicians who uh, stands with me every year reads the Hippocratic Oath every year. Oh, he, wow. He, he reads it to the board of directors and he says... Don't you see, and he kind of underlines that emphatically, don't you see that you're just basically throwing this out? And, and you know, they just kind of roll their eyes. And, they roll their eyes. And they kind of move on. It's, it's not, it really isn't that important to them. Look, I think the, mm. this is all about think speech, yeah. right? So yeah. th this is uh, how you manipulate words to make things seem okay. I mean, that's what it has to be. I mean, it's, one of the interesting things... 88% of uh, pro-life people would say that um, life begins at conception. Mm -hmm. Do you know what the number is of the pro-choice people? I believe it begins at conception? Yeah, 28%. Uh, pro-choice people believe that life begins at conception. So what does that tell you about those individuals? They're pro-choice. They believe that life begins at conception. And they're okay with killing it. Why? Hmm. How can you make that connection in your brain? So you, you look at that and we just go, what? Yeah, I just feel like there's so much dissonance, right? And, and so like, and on the, I'm thinking back to, you know, when um, in, in the Clinton era where the slogan was safe, legal, and rare. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Safe, and, and now, I mean, that's been jettisoned as well <laughs> uh, because, you know, why would it need to be rare? What's, what's the problem? What's the problem? That's right. right. Yeah. 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 Well, it's, it's very much like. Uh, the propaganda that countries used to use um, during wartime. Okay. So what 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 does the your country do to the other countries? Dehumanize them. You make them subhuman so it's easier to kill them. That's exactly right. Well, that's what has happened in the abortion debate. 
Wow. So you think it's more of a war against the unborn in a way? Yeah, I think. Look, I mean, it's, it's an amazing thing. You, you have to be very careful how you walk into some of these conversations. Yeah. Yeah. But, but the majority of the babies that are being aborted are minority babies that are being aborted. Yeah, yeah that's, that's a... That's insightful point. That's very insightful. So, and, um, you know, the the originators of Planned Parenthood. Yeah. Who, who was the founder in that one there? Was that uh, Mar- Margaret Sanger? Sanger. Sanger, yeah. Sanger right? Yeah. She was a, a eugenics yeah. person. Okay. So the eugenics people were very much in favor of getting rid of all the deformed people, not uh, babies, people. People. Who were out there already. And they were very much racist. So they like a Nazi much, kind of situation. Yeah, like we want the like, ideal race. Like Goebbels and, you know, and <laughs> some of those guys. So, look, I think you have to be careful because I, I, I don't believe that the current Planned Parenthood leadership is into eugenics and <laughs> racism and, and genocide them, yeah. of minorities. But that was their origins. That's that where they origin. came from. And when you look back at their history, that's where they came from. By the way, Susan B. Anthony who was the founder of the feminist movement, was a pro-life person. When you read her writings, she was very much pro-life. She was in favor of protecting Mm -hmm. the baby. Mm -hmm. So it's it's kind of strange how, you know, the worm has turned, so to speak, and and they're on the other side of these issues. Look, it's I think it's a big business. I, I Try not to believe that the abortion industry is out there just for money. To make but it, money. But it is a big it's, business. It is a business. Yeah. And I mean, they make a lot of money. Man. A lot. So. And now they, they want the government to start sponsoring that right. too. Yeah. Which is going to be very interesting in the future. You know, and then the you had talked about earlier, uh, Dylan, the idea of the conscientious objection. And, you know, you think about the— the little sisters, you know, what, the was, poor. what was happening yeah. to the little sisters of the poor. With, with the Affordable Care Act, and, and they're right. required to provide right. abortifacient right. pills. So, so here, that's where things were moving just a few years ago. Yeah. Um, and quite frankly, for those of us on the, in the pro-life movement, we saw it as a stone rolling down a hill that we weren't going to be able to stop. It was just wow. going to continue to kind of crush us under its weight. So we've got a little reprieve and some breathing room right now <laughs> yeah. and, and the supreme court seems to be a little bit more favorable towards our way of thinking um so the the, the political side of it probably has gotten a little bit better but it doesn't change the scientific piece and the divisiveness is not going away it's probably worse now i think because of that wow. because they they sense that they've lost control wow. uh you know of of the debate and the fight anyway <sighs> As it was, as oh, it were. Do you, do you think that there's a there's a chance for uh, Roe to be overturned? I don't know. That's that's a great question. I think that that's obviously the um, ideal selling point for the um, progressive movement because they can instill fear in a lot of their constituency. I think even if Roe were overturned. Which it goes are, to the states. It goes to the yeah, states, exactly. and and you know New Jersey, California, and, and DC, yeah. and California, and New York are all going to have permissive abortion yeah. um, policies. It's going to it's going to mimic the map. You know, yeah. the blue map is going to look blue for abortion, and the purple map is going to be purple, and the red's <laughs> going to be red. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, because it, it, it's all politics. Yeah. Um, so even if Rose overturned, there's a lot of work still to be done. Yeah, well, I've heard that some people have been trying to implement the idea that by declaring an unborn person to be a person, hmm. 
like there's other amendments out there right. that, that that give rights or that recognize the rights of all persons. Yeah. And if you could make that argument and get Congress or an amendment to say that persons include unborn persons, right? You could you could attack it from that direction. Well, you touched on it a little bit earlier, Eric. The idea of um, the fact that unborn children do have some rights, and if there's a crime against the mother and the unborn child is involved in that crime, yeah. injury, then there are penalties. By the way, that goes back to Exodus. It does. So there, there. I mean, there actually is scripture to support that exact finding. That's right. You know, all the way back to Exodus. So it's, it, it raises the issue of personhood. So this yeah. was a big topic that the pro-life movement got involved with about 10 years ago. And I tried, I've, I've tried to make that argument with some of my progressive friends. Will you tell me when a child should have rights under the law? Uh, when should that child be protected? You know, you're not Peter Singer. When should that <laughs> child be protected? Yeah. And so they basically either have no idea how to answer that because they're just parroting the, you know, the pro-choice um, talking points. Uh-huh. Um, or they get tongue-tied. Because they know where you're taking them. Yeah. You're taking them on a, a retro there. journey into the womb. Yeah, they and they don't, don't want to go there because they know it's going to end up on the zygote. Right. <laughs> right. And, and they don't want to end up on the zygote. Yeah, you yeah. Know, so they really don't. Yeah. I mean, most of their arguments are based on the hard cases. Yeah. right? So we talked about one of the hard cases. right? The, when, the, when the life of the mother is truly in jeopardy. Rape, incest. You know, mm-hmm. Those are the hard cases. They're, they're pretty infrequent, pretty rare, yeah. but that's their rhetoric because that, you know, those seem to be uh, great selling points. So. Yeah. I've heard it said that like edge cases make for bad law. Like yeah, when you, you try don't to make law around exceptions. Yeah. Right. 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 So right. A- anyway, yeah. it's kind of another example of that. And I, you know, you, uh, doc, you've mentioned, um, Peter Singer a few times and, uh, philosopher out of Princeton. Right. Right. So, um, a humanist. So I, was, I think he's a utilitarian. I think I'd have to go back and double check. Like whatever that. is useful is good. Right. Essentially, well, whatever. And there's also a corollary with pain, right? If you, it's in maximizing happiness and minimizing pain, and mm-hmm. I think that's part of where the infanticide piece comes from. Is the mm. the child can't feel a whole lot of pain. I'd have to double check that. I don't want to miss it, yeah. misrepresent his view. Um, but I just I say that to say it might be worth. You know, maybe at some point there's questions out there about that, about just having an episode on utilitarianism or or uh, some of Singer's work. I mean, I've, mm-hmm. I've, you know, um, I'm not as familiar with it as I would like to be, but um, I think it's a really interesting topic and warrants additional yeah. conversation. So, um, well, bringing this application to uh, to Christians who are listening to this, perhaps. I mean, I know that it's very convicting. It, it, it breaks my heart to to to, to see abortion uh, still thriving in our land. And I know that Scripture is is, is pretty clear about about that. I mean, we were talking about some medical arguments in favor of it, but I'm always struck by in, in Proverbs uh, uh, where where it talks about there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him, and it lists them: haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood mm-hmm. is an abomination right. to the Lord, and He hates those things. And we live in a land that sheds the innocent blood of, of, of around a million mm-hmm. per year. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, what, I guess from your perspective, what can we do as Christians? What should we be doing as Christians to keep, uh, you know, yeah. protecting? Look, as life? a believer, the imagery that God gives us is breathtaking, that he knew us mm. 
while we were being formed, even yeah. before we were being formed in our mother's womb. I mean, that imagery is just breathtaking to me. It's, it really is. Mm. I, you know, I think the, the most difficult part right now, and you kind of alluded to it, Dylan, is that people won't even engage you in the conversation anymore. Yeah, so I think where do you go when the wall goes up? So, uh, you know, I think the, the best you can do is to, is to share the gospel with them, quite frankly, if they're, you know, if they're not believers— is to change their heart because if you know until they have that heart transplant, they're probably not going to have a turn in their view on this. Now, I, having said that, I did say there is a large middle ground there. Mm-hmm. So if they're willing to talk about the issues, then I, I typically what I'll do is walk them back. As I mm-hmm. said, I'll kind of walk them back into the womb and say, "Will you tell me, you know, at what point uh, should this individual uh, have rights under the law?" Mm-hmm. So. And then, you know, then you can have the debate about when does life begin. And, but largely, that's not even a debate anymore. Yeah. I mean, the science, most scientists won't even debate that. Politicians will debate that. That's interesting. Scientists won't debate that. Yeah. You know, <laughs> physicians don't debate that. When I, you know, what, what typically happened with our open board meetings is um, for years, the, uh, the chief of OB, who was very pro-choice, would organize a countergroup to my group. Hmm. Okay. So we would take turns going first, huh. you know, so, hmm. and, and, um, we were friends. So I befriended him, yeah. even though we had contrary views. <laughs> one, one year he called me before, like the, the week before the meeting. And he said, Chris, how about if I do the pro-life arguments this year, you do the pro-choice oh, arguments. reversal role play. I said, you don't really understand this, do you? I said, this is real for me yeah. and for my people. This is not a, a debate match, you know, for us. The, the, I couldn't true. possibly do your side. If I, I did your side, I would just sit there in silence. I don't believe <laughs> I don't believe in your side at all. So I mean he's he was a brilliant guy, still is. And uh for him it was just a debating game. And he knew he had a stacked deck. He knew that the board was going to largely side with him no matter what he said or who he put up there. Hmm. So we had what one year we had a young man who survived an abortion? Really, mm. present to the board. Yeah. Talk about those are powerful. powerful. Those now, what week did he talk about? What yep. week he had survived? Uh, I forget. But yeah. he was—he had um, defects, physical defects related to the abortion. Oh he was goodness. injured yeah. because of the abortion and survived it. Yeah. So, you know, uh, Kermit Gosnell right here in Philadelphia. I right? know. You know yeah. so Doctor death or whatever. He's well, he's in jail now. His life sentence, I think, Praise for God. for twenty four murders. You know yeah. that he. Uh, was engaged in so this and there's a movie now which I haven't actually seen a Gosnell movie yeah, yeah the yeah. Gosnell movie the documentary which, yeah. which is kind of documents the how horrendous this is I mean understand that um, has become so politicized to the point where they won't even allow uh, abortion clinics to be held to the same standard like medical standard as a same day procedure unit so it is. Um, it's easier to get an abortion than it is to get a tonsillectomy. Mm. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Yeah. Because of the po- po- political protections that are built in right now. Wow. So they are so aggressive about protecting the right to abortion that they are trying to remove all the restrictions. restrictions. Now, they've changed a lot. A lot of the case law, especially in Pennsylvania, has brought in consenting. There was an era where there was no consents, mm. right? Mm. So there's in, uh, informed consent, so there has to be a waiting period. Um, you know, mm. all of that has been built in. But that's really 
the inroads that the pro-life movement has made in the last. Yeah. Maybe month. we should get a law like a nine-month waiting period. Pretty <laughs> sounds, good. Sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and then the the abortion. Uh, I'm sorry. The uh, adoption industry, you know, yeah. is is in extremis right now because there are no babies for adoption. Wow. That's interesting so, how they all impact each other, how it all ties together. Right. Yeah. Wow. Look, uh, the answer I always give uh, somebody who says, well, you need to abort these babies because they're unwanted. First of all, <laughs> the option that you should kill them because they're unwanted <laughs> doesn't seem to really jive very well for the unwanted child. Maybe they should ask him or her what they would like. You know. And secondly, you would think that if something's unwanted, you should want it. You should provide for it. That's the one you should really go over the top to try and help, right? Yeah. So, you know, for the homeless people or it's people who heart. really yeah. are needy yeah. because yeah. they're unwanted. I mean, how many people are unwanted? Yeah. yeah. I mean, just he'll kill them all and is do it what the, Hitler did? And is it the child's fault yeah. that they're unwanted? Oh, my goodness. You know, so th this really becomes convenience. So many of the abortions, the vast majority, not, you know, 98% of them are uh, convenience abortions because they're going to interfere with uh, job, career, education, job, education. Yeah. It's just not a good time right now. So but it does leave um, it leaves a scar, I think, on a lot of these, not just the women, you know, it yeah. leaves a scar on the fathers on uh, any grandparents that might yeah. be involved in this. It leaves a scar on them because they wonder, you know, yeah. what might That's what been. I was just going to say is like in, in the name of, of loving, uh, especially women, yeah. to, to pr promote uh, something that so frequently we see become just the opposite right. where, um, yeah, it's like, no, this is, this is not loving uh, to, even yeah. to, to – I, I say this as as a man, and so you know, here here I am, like quote unquote mansplaining. But but like I have heard <laughs> it, but I've heard it said, like this is not love. This is not loving to women, right? Mm -hmm. That that this is something that would be promoted because time and again, women who have gone through these procedures have exactly the kind of sentiment you're right. describing, where it's like they just wonder, like you you somehow, even if like not even uh, for them, for those who are not doing this from like, from, from a Christian perspective, but just generally, like there's this sense that the way I've heard it described before is like, you, you've, you've messed with some of the, 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 the flow of the universe. Like the, someone who is not a Christian, just, just trying to grasp yeah. how to describe what they just did. Yeah. Um, it's, it's remarkable, mm -hmm. you know, so it's yeah. contrary. I mean, it's, it really, you're asking the woman to do something that is just contrary to her nature. Yeah. And she knows it's contrary to her nature. There is a bond between, I think, uh, a mother and a child that's a little bit different than mm -hmm. the bond between a, a man and his child. Do you think that a lot of this is is, is men, boyfriends, whatever, pressuring, uh, I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, their, honestly, their girlfriends to have I don't, abortion? I don't know the answer to that, because I, 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 I probably shouldn't speculate on that. Yeah. But I, I, what I do know is that it's it's contrary to the way they think and the way they believe. And, and there is a post-abortion depression syndrome. It's pretty well reported. It's in the, the psychiatric ICD-9 manuals. Huh. And so, you know, that that is a, a major concern. So I think because of the dehumanization, yeah. it's, it's probably better now because they've turned what is a human being into an not a human tissue. being, a glob of tissue. So that's the language. That's the rhetoric of uh, Planned Parenthood and the pro-choice organizations. It's what they have to do. 
Because if if people knew what they were doing, if they believed they were killing one of their own children, yeah. person, yeah, they 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 probably couldn't live with themselves. What are some things that you would? What are some words of encouragement or recommendations that you would have for Christians? Um, now, just like kind of changing the lens a little bit to serve mothers well, and these are mothers who maybe are wrestling through these kinds of questions yeah. or who are struggling through this, or maybe who have who have had abortions in the past. Right. Um, I mean, it's such a sobering thing, but there are so many women out there for whom, you know, either this has happened or they're faced with this right. um, this situation right now, and it's terrifying for them, and they're not sure what they're going to do or right. if they bring a child into the world, how they're going to provide for this child, can they give this child a good life? And there is such um, uncertainty and, and fear. Like, how can we as Christians and as the church love those women well? Yeah, I mean, that's a great point, Dylan, because really— um, abortion is not the unpardonable sin. And so yeah. just like every sin that's out there, what, what we need is the, is the forgiveness, mercy paradigm that yeah. God has offered all of us. And so, you know, the, the solution there is a relationship with Jesus Christ um, who will forgive you and will accept you no matter what your background is. So that's part one of that is that it's, it is an opportunity mm-hmm. to share, I think, uh, the love of Christ. The second part is um, get involved in the crisis pregnancy centers. They're all over the place, mm-hmm. and they really need uh, they need financial support, but they also need physical support mm-hmm. because it's hard to staff these. And if you have a heart for these women, then that's the place to go because that's where they're going. So yeah. that's where they get referred to. They find out about these places. They support them. You know, if they need to, they support them through the course of the pregnancy, and then they'll provide support. Um, for them after the after the baby is born, um, if they need adoption, they provide mechanisms for that. So the that is really a great outlet. You know, when you get discouraged by the debate, mm. you know what I would say is get off the platform. Yeah, <laughs> stop debating. Yeah, let's do some work and get out, get out there yeah, and do some yeah, work and help. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, amen, amen. Um, gentlemen, I just want to bring this into a close. And and Doc, thank you again so much for taking the time to to share all of the, the, the wisdom and reflection that you've yeah. shared. You mentioned earlier uh, the, the verse, Psalm 139. I'm just going to read these two verses. Mm-hmm. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Mm. Um, and how amen. telling that is, yeah, just to so much of the conversations we've been having. Mm-hmm. Well, listen, if uh, I, today's uh, episode is, is sobering, uh, challenging to you, and, and you felt encouraged by it, or you have follow-up questions uh, for us, for Doc, please do feel free to reach out. You can contact us at, in, in all of these cases, we have the number two, twoguysinabible.podcast at gmail.com. Um, you can also find us on Twitter at Two Guys in a Bible, Facebook.com forward slash Two Guys in a Bible, or Two Guys in a Bible.org. Um, also, please uh, leave us reviews. We, we profit from uh, seeing the reviews of, of mm-hmm. the episodes that we do. Um, and we would love, again, if you have any follow up questions, please do feel free uh, to reach out. Yeah. And we'd love to have you back on again sometime, Doc. There's a lot of topics to cover. My pleasure. Medical perspective, yeah. Yeah, uh, like end of life care, youth, uh, uh, physician assisted suicide. Mm-hmm. Uh, which we briefly mentioned, so mm-hmm. uh, hopefully we can yeah. have you on, on again sometime. Yeah. Very good. We love that. And also, if, if any of you out there are listening and, and need uh, resources, access to resources, whether it's to books or to contact information for Crisis Pregnancy Center, if you're out there and you find yourself in that situation, please do feel free to reach out, and we will make sure that we put you in contact 
with the appropriate parties, whatever your circumstances are. We'd love to, we'd love to hear from you. Yeah. All right. All right. Thank you so much, all, and God bless. Bye-bye. Uh,